Section 49 of Volume 1C of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1C, Section 49, Chapter 37, Part 3. A few months after, he resigned to Philip his other dominions, and embarking on board a fleet, sailed to Spain, and took his journey to St. Just, a monastery in Estremadura, which being situated in a happy climate, and amidst the greatest beauties of nature, he had chosen for the place of his retreat. When he arrived at Burgos, he found, by the thinness of his court, and the negligent attendance of the Spanish grandees, that he was no longer emperor, and though this observation might convince him still more of the vanity of the world, and make him more heartily despise what he had renounced, he sighed to find that all former adulation and obeisance had been paid to his fortune, not his person. With better reason was he struck with the ingratitude of his son Philip, who obliged him to wait a long time for the payment of the small pension which he had reserved, and this disappointment in his domestic enjoyments gave him a sensible concern. He pursued, however, his resolution with inflexible constancy, and shutting himself up in his retreat, he exerted such self-command that he restrained even his curiosity from any inquiry concerning the transactions of the world which he had entirely abandoned. The fencing against the pains and infirmities under which he laboured occupied a great part of his time, and during the intervals he employed his leisure either in examining the controversies of theology, with which his age had been so much agitated, and which he had hitherto considered only in a political light, or in imitating the works of renowned artists, particularly in mechanics, of which he had always been a great admirer and encourager. He is said to have here discovered a propensity to the new doctrines, and to have frequently dropped hints of this unexpected alteration in his sentiments. Having amused himself with the construction of clocks and watches, he thence remarked how impractical the object was in which he had so much employed himself during his grandeur, and how impossible that he, who could never frame two machines that would go exactly alike, could ever be able to make all mankind concur in the same belief and opinion. He survived his retreat two years. The Emperor Charles had very early in the beginning of his reign found the difficulty of governing such distant dominions, and he had made his brother Ferdinand be elected King of the Romans, with a view to his inheriting the imperial dignity, as well as his German dominions, but having afterwards enlarged his schemes, and formed plans of aggrandizing his family, he regretted that he must dismember such considerable states, and he endeavoured to engage Ferdinand, 
by the most tempting offers and most earnest solicitations to yield up his pretensions in favour of philip finding his attempts fruitless he had resigned the imperial crown with his other dignities and ferdinand according to common form applied to the pope for his coronation the arrogant pontiff refused the demand and pretended that though on the death of an emperor he was obliged to crown the prince elected yet in the case of a resignation the right devolved to the holy see and it belonged to the pope alone to appoint an emperor the conduct of paul was in everything conformable to these lofty pretensions he thundered always in the ears of all ambassadors that he stood in no need of the assistance of any prince that he was above all potentates on the earth that he would not accustom monarchs to pretend to a familiarity or equality with him that it belonged to him to alter and regulate kingdoms that he was successor of those who had deposed kings and emperors and that rather than submit to anything below his dignity he would set fire to the four corners of the world he went so far as at table in the presence of many persons and even openly in a public consistory to say that he would not admit any kings for his companions they were all his subjects and he would hold them under these feet so saying he stamped on the ground with his old and infirm limbs for he was now past fourscore years of age the world could not forbear making a comparison between charles v a prince who though educated amidst wars and intrigues of state had prevented the decline of age and had descended from the throne in order to set apart an interval for thought and reflection and a priest who in the extremity of old age exulted in his dominion and from restless ambition and revenge was throwing all nations into combustion paul had entertained the most inveterate animosity against the house of austria and though a truce of five years had been concluded between france and spain he excited henry by his solicitations to break it and promised to assist him in recovering naples and the dominions to which he laid claim in italy a project which had ever proved hurtful to the predecessors of that monarch he himself engaged in hostilities with the duke of alva viceroy of naples and guise being sent with forces to support him the renewal of war between the two crowns seemed almost inevitable philip though less warlike than his father was no less ambitious and he trusted that by the intrigues of the cabinet where he believed his caution and secrecy and prudence gave him the superiority he should be able to subdue all his enemies and extend his authority and dominion for this reason as well as from the desire of settling his new empire he wished to maintain peace with france but when he found that without sacrificing his honour it was impossible for him to overlook the hostile attempts of henry he prepared for war with great industry in order to give himself the more advantage he was desirous of embarking england in the quarrel 
and though the queen was of herself extremely averse to that measure he hoped that the devoted fondness which notwithstanding repeated instances of his indifference she still bore to him would effectually second his applications had the matter indeed depended solely on her she was incapable of resisting her husband's commands but she had little weight with her council still less with her people and her government which was every day becoming more odious seemed unable to maintain itself even during the most profound tranquillity much more if a war were kindled with france and what seemed an inevitable consequence with scotland supported by that powerful kingdom an act of barbarity was this year exercised in england which added to many other instances of the same kind tended to render the government extremely unpopular cranmer had long been detained prisoner but the queen now determined to bring him to punishment and in order the more fully to satiate her vengeance she resolved to punish him for heresy rather than for treason he was cited by the pope to stand his trial at rome and though he was known to be kept in close custody at oxford he was upon his not appearing condemned as contumacious bonner bishop of london and thirlby of ely were sent to degrade him and the former executed the melancholy ceremony with all the joy and exultation which suited his savage nature the implacable spirit of the queen not satisfied with the eternal damnation of cranmer which she believed inevitable and with the execution of that dreadful sentence to which he was condemned prompted her also to seek the ruin of his honour and the infamy of his name persons were employed to attack him not in the way of disputation against which he was sufficiently armed but by flattery insinuation and address by representing the dignities to which his character still entitled him if he would merit them by a recantation by giving hopes of long enjoying those powerful friends whom his beneficent disposition had attached to him during the course of his prosperity overcome by the fond love of life terrified by the prospect of those tortures which awaited him he allowed in an unguarded hour the sentiments of nature to prevail over his resolution and he agreed to subscribe to the doctrines of the papal supremacy and of the real presence the court equally perfidious and cruel were determined that this recantation should avail him nothing and they sent orders that he should be required to acknowledge his errors in church before the whole people and that he should thence be immediately carried to execution cranmer whether that he had received a secret intimation of their design or had repented of his weakness surprised the audience by a contrary declaration he said that he was well apprised of the obedience which he owed to his sovereign and the laws but this duty extended no further than to submit patiently to their commands and to bear without resistance whatever hardships they should impose upon him that a superior duty the duty which he owed to his maker obliged him to speak truth on all occasions 
and not to relinquish by a base denial the holy doctrine which the supreme being had revealed to mankind that there was one miscarriage in his life of which above all others he severely repented the insincere declaration of faith to which he had the weakness to consent and which the fear of death alone had extorted from him that he took this opportunity of atoning for his error by a sincere and open recantation and was willing to seal with his blood that doctrine which he firmly believed to be communicated from heaven and that as his hand had erred by betraying his heart it should first be punished by a severe but just doom and should first pay the forfeit of his offences he was thence led to the stake amidst the insults of the catholics and having now summoned up all the force of his mind he bore their scorn as well as the torture of his punishment with singular fortitude he stretched out his hand and without betraying either by his countenance or motions the least sign of weakness or even of feeling he held it in the flames till it was entirely consumed his thoughts seemed wholly occupied with reflections on his former fault and he called aloud several times this hand has offended satisfied with that atonement he then discovered a serenity in his countenance and when the fire attacked his body he seemed to be quite insensible of his outward sufferings and by the force of hope and resolution to have collected his mind altogether within itself and to repel the fury of the flames it is pretended that after his body was consumed his heart was found entire and untouched amidst the ashes an event which as it was the emblem of his constancy was fondly believed by the zealous protestants he was undoubtedly a man of merit possessed of learning and capacity and adorned with candour sincerity and beneficence and all those virtues which were fitted to render him useful and amiable in society his moral qualities procured him universal respect and the courage of his martyrdom though he fell short of the rigid inflexibility observed in many made him the hero of the protestant party after cranmer's death cardinal pole who had now taken priest's orders was installed in the see of canterbury and was thus by this office as well as by commission of legate placed at the head of the church of england but though he was averse to all sanguinary methods of converting heretics and deemed the reformation of the clergy the more effectual as the more laudable expedient for that purpose he found his authority too weak to oppose the barbarous and bigoted disposition of the queen and of her counsellors he himself he knew had been suspected of lutheranism and as paul the reigning pope was a furious persecutor and his personal enemy he was prompted by the modesty of his disposition to reserve his credit for other occasions in which he had a greater probability of success the great object of the queen was to engage the nation in the war which was kindled between france and spain and cardinal pole with many other counsellors 
openly and zealously opposed this measure. Besides insisting on the marriage articles which provided against such an attempt, they represented the violence of the domestic factions in England, and the disordered state of the finances, and they foreboded that the tendency of all these measures was to reduce the kingdom to a total dependence on Spanish councils. Philip had come to London in order to support his partisans, and he told the queen that if he were not gratified in so reasonable a request, he never more would set foot in England. This declaration extremely heightened her zeal for promoting his interests, and overcoming the inflexibility of her counsel. After employing other menaces of a more violent nature, she threatened to dismiss all of them, and to appoint counsellors more obsequious. Yet could she not procure a vote for declaring war with France? At length one Stafford and some other conspirators were detected in a design of surprising Scarborough, and a confession being extorted from them, that they had been encouraged by Henry in the attempt, the Queen's importunity prevailed, and it was determined to make this act of hostility, with others of a like secret and doubtful nature, the ground of the quarrel. War was accordingly declared against France, and preparations were everywhere made for attacking that kingdom. The revenue of England at that time little exceeded three hundred thousand pounds. Any considerable supplies could scarcely be expected from Parliament, considering the recent disposition of the nation, and as the war would sensibly diminish that branch arising from the customs, the finances, it was foreseen, would fall short even of the ordinary charges of government, and must still more prove unequal to the expenses of war. But though the queen owed great arrears to all her servants besides the loans extorted from her subjects, these considerations had no influence with her, and in order to support her warlike preparations, she continued to levy money in the same arbitrary and violent manner which she had formerly practised. She obliged the city of London to supply her with sixty thousand pounds on her husband's entry. She levied before the legal time the second year's subsidy voted by Parliament. She issued anew many privy seals by which she procured loans from her people, and having equipped a fleet, which she could not victual by reasons of the dearness of provisions, she seized all the corn she could find in Suffolk and Norfolk, without paying any price to the owners. By all these expedients, assisted by the power of pressing, she levied an army of ten thousand men, which she sent over to the Low Countries under the command of the Earl of Pembroke. Meanwhile, in order to prevent any disturbance at home, many of the most considerable gentry were thrown into the tower, and lest they should be known, the Spanish practice was followed. They either were carried thither in the night-time, or were hoodwinked and muffled by the guards who conducted them. The King of Spain had assembled an army, which after the junction of the English amounted to above sixty thousand men, conducted by Philibert, Duke of Savoy, one of the greatest captains of the age. The constable Montmorency, who commanded the French army, 
had not half the number to oppose to him. The Duke of Savoy, after menacing Mariembra and Rockroy, suddenly sat down before St. Quentin, and as the place was weak and ill provided with a garrison, he expected in a few days to become master of it. But Admiral Coligny, governor of the province, thinking his honour interested to save so important a fortress, threw himself into St. Quintin with some troops of French and Scottish gendarmerie, and by his exhortations and example, animated the soldiers to a vigorous defence. He dispatched a messenger to his uncle Montmorency, desiring a supply of men, and the constable approached the place with his whole army, in order to facilitate the entry of these succours. But the Duke of Savoy, falling on the reinforcement, did such execution upon them that not above five hundred got into the place. He next made an attack on the French army, and put them to total rout, killing four thousand men, and dispersing the remainder. In this unfortunate action many of the chief nobility of France were either slain or taken prisoner. Among the latter was the old constable himself, who, fighting valiantly and resolute to die rather than survive his defeat, was surrounded by the enemy, and thus fell alive into their hands. The whole kingdom of France was thrown into consternation. Paris was attempted to be fortified in a hurry, and had the Spaniards presently marched thither, it could not have failed to fall into their hands. But Philip was of a cautious temper, and he determined first to take St. Quentin, in order to secure a communication with his own dominions. A very little time, it was expected, would finish this enterprise, but the bravery of Coligny still prolonged the siege seventeen days, which proved the safety of France. Some troops were levied and assembled. Couriers were sent to recall the Duke of Guise and his army from Italy, and the French, having recovered from their first panic, put themselves in a posture of defence. Philip, after taking Ham and Catelet, found the season so far advanced that he could attempt no other enterprise. He broke up his camp and retired to winter quarters. But the vigilant activity of Guise, not satisfied with securing the frontiers, prompted him in the depth of winter to plan an enterprise which France, during her greatest successes, had always regarded as impracticable, and had never thought of undertaking. Calais was in that age deemed an impregnable fortress, and as it was known to be the favourite of the English nation, by whom it could easily be succoured, the recovery of that place by France was considered as totally desperate. But Coligny had remarked that as the town of Calais was surrounded with marshes, which during the winter were impassable, except over a dike guarded by two castles, St. Agatha and Newnham Bridge, the English were of late accustomed, on account of the lowness of their finances, to dismiss a great part of the garrison at the end of autumn, and to recall them in the spring, at which time alone they judged their attendance necessary. On this circumstance he had founded the design of making a sudden attack on Calais. 
he had caused the place to be secretly viewed by some engineers and a plan of the whole enterprise being found among his papers it served though he himself was made prisoner on the taking of st quintin to suggest the project of that undertaking and to direct the measures of the duke of guise several bodies of troops defiled towards the frontiers on various pretences and the whole being suddenly assembled formed an army with which guise made an unexpected march towards calais at the same time a great number of french ships being ordered into the channel under colour of cruising on the english composed a fleet which made an attack by sea on the fortifications the french assaulted st agatha with three thousand arquebusiers and the garrison though they made a vigorous defence were soon obliged to abandon the place and retreat to newnham bridge the siege of this latter place was immediately undertaken and at the same time the fleet battered the risbank which guarded the entrance of the harbour and both these castles seemed exposed to imminent danger the governor lord wentworth was a brave officer but finding that the greater part of his weak garrison was enclosed in the castle of newnham bridge and the risbank he ordered them to capitulate and to join him in calais which without their assistance he was utterly unable to defend the garrison of newnham bridge was so happy as to effect this purpose but that of the risbank could not obtain such favourable conditions and were obliged to surrender at discretion end of section forty nine chapter thirty seven part three